0: Please would you turn with me to the book of Kings, 1 Kings chapter 18. We're going to consider the passage that we read a little earlier now. Look at the years 870 to 850 BC. A man called Ahab is king over Israel in the northern kingdom. And this man is a wicked man. His father Omri, the Bible says, was the lowest of the low. There'd never been such an evil king as his father Omri. But Ahab was even worse than him. He'd married Jezebel. Jezebel was from Phoenicia. And she, with him, introduced, well, not introduced, but encouraged Baal worship amongst God's people. And they built a temple to Baal. Baal was the god of the storm. They built a temple in Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom. And they decided to execute the prophets of God. This was a very wicked man. He'd intermarried with a pagan woman. That should just alert us, shouldn't it? That who you marry is crucial. If you're a Christian, you should always marry in the Lord. You should marry a Christian. He'd married a wicked woman. His heart was far from God. And she'd encouraged him in his wicked ways. Now, Elijah went into lockdown. In fact, for three and a half years, he was in a place of hiding. There was another man called Obadiah who was in the court of King Ahab, and he was a godly man, and he'd managed to hide a 100 prophets of God, 50 in two caves. He was a godly man, Obadiah. But the Lord was protecting his servant Elijah who was the man of God, the prophet of God the one who was the spokesperson for God to the nation the Lord hid him away in a little brook, the brook Cherith the Lord said go there and I'll provide for you be alone each day the ravens came and they provided meat for him and he would drink from the brook but eventually because of the drought there was no rain for three and a half years that brook dried up. And the Lord sent his servant Elijah into another place of hiding. He sent him outside of the land. In fact, he sent him to Phoenicia, where Jezebel was from. He sent him to a place called Zarephath, near Sidon on the coast. And there, Elijah was to stay with a a widow A widow who was about to die. She had no more food. It was a time of drought. But God miraculously through his servant Elijah provided for her and her son and Elijah himself. And there he stayed. He was in lockdown for three and a half years. And then God spoke to him. And God said to Elijah, rain is going to come again. And you've got to go back. And you've got to speak to King Ahab and you're going to call King Ahab to Mount Carmel and there will be a contest there and you know the story well. It's told in many Sunday schools. You've probably heard this story many times but just remind yourself King Ahab had 450 prophets of Baal who he fed and also Jezebel included prophets of Asherah and they ate from her table. 850 of them. And 450 were to be taken to Mount Carmel. And there'll be a contest. There's one man, Elijah, versus are 450 prophets. And Elijah says this, take an animal, cut it in two, build an altar, put wood underneath this sacrifice. And you call down God, sorry, you call down fire from heaven. You pray to your God, And I'll do the same. I'll take a sacrifice. I'll cut it in two. And I'll call down fire from heaven. And the God which answers by fire, he is the true God. That was a contest. And so the prophets of Baal, they built their altar. And they prayed and they cried out to a lifeless God. A God that was no true God. They cut themselves with swords and with lances Elijah, by midday, to them and said, "Well, where is your God? Is he asleep?" He began to mock them. He said, "Is he, has he gone for a walk? Is he gone to relieve himself? What, 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 is he too busy? What, what's happened?" And then eventually Elijah, he cuts his animal in two. And what does he do Before that? He, he restores the altar of God. He places 12 stones there. You see this? What's going to happen is not just going to be a, a testimony to the northern kingdom. This is for the whole of God's people, the 12 tribes, Judah and Israel. And so 12 stones are used to rebuild the altar of God. And uh, what does he do? Having cut the animal in two, he drenches it. Four pots of water are used. And three times the the sacrifice is, is drenched. And then he calls out to the living God. And God answers by fire. The fire consumes that sacrifice, licks up even the water that was in the trenches around the sacrifice. And how do the people respond? Verse 39 of chapter 18. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. They fall upon their faces before the living God. And they declare the Lord is God. And now Elijah believes it's the time for God's people to come out of their form of lockdown. He's been in lockdown, but it's been oppressive for them. He hasn't been able to declare the word of God to them. There's been an absence of preaching for three and a half years. And he sees signs of hope. And we're going to go into chapter 19, but confine ourselves to, from verse 41 of chapter 18, going into chapter 19 in verse 10. And we're going to look at two things. First of all, we're going to look at signs of hope. But then secondly, the understanding of God's will. You see, we're going to see that whilst there were these glorious signs of hope, rain was coming and it did come, a deluge of rain. The covenant curse of God was being lifted. Yet, Elijah needed to learn lessons. He needed to understand the will of God. Though there were signs of hope, it wouldn't be as he expected it to be. So let's think first of all of these signs of hope. Well, let's remind ourselves of this, that God brought his servant back into the land. He didn't keep Elijah out of the land. He miraculously kept his servant alive. He wasn't slain by the sword of Jezebel and was brought back. And then the second sign of hope is this, is that when he presented himself before Ahab, Ahab actually listened and was prepared for the contest. It could have been at that point that Ahab would have said, well, you've, you're a troubler in Israel, and now is your execution. But he didn't. He was prepared for the contest. There was a measure of God's grace shown in the restraint in the heart of Ahab. And then perhaps the greatest sign of hope for Ahab was this, was not only the fire falling... But the Israelites, who'd had a divided heart, do you remember he said to them, choose whom you will serve. Well, why do you falter? If, if the Lord is God, if Jehovah is God, serve him. But if Baal is God, serve him. But now it seems as if the people have a, a singular heart. No, it's the Lord, we're choosing him. The Lord, he is God, and they've fallen down before him. And, and it seems to Elijah that God's people have been restored And though they've had this wicked king, Ahab, surely he will now fall into line and God's people will turn back to the worship of the living God. And so as we come into chapter 18, verses 41 to 46, we see a man praying with confidence. Though God has said at the beginning of chapter 18 that there will be rain, chapter 18, verse 1, go present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the earth He is not presumptuous, he's praying for it. God has said it will happen. He doesn't want Ahab there with him. He says, Ahab, you you eat and drink. You get on with life. But I'm going up to the mountain again to come and I'm going to meet with God. And I'm going to pray. And he prays with confidence, in faith, fervently. And when there seems to be an initial nothing, not necessarily a no, but a nothing to his prayer, he continues to pray. I wonder are we like that? So he says to his servant who's gone up the mountain with him, look on the horizon and see if there's any signs of, uh, of rain. And his servant goes and he comes back and he says, there's no sign of rain, still blue skies, no clouds. And so Elijah, with his head between his knees, in an act of humility, doubled over in the dust, prays again to God, believingly, with faith. And he tells his servant to look because he believes that rain is coming. But his servant comes back and said, no clouds, no sign of rain. And seven times that happens. And on the seventh occasion, his servant comes back. And he says to Elijah, I see a cloud the size of a man's hand. And that's enough for Elijah. He knows that rain is coming. But you notice, he never gave up was persistent in prayer. He didn't say after the third time, well, let's descend from the mountain, let's give up on praying. God isn't going to answer. No, God has said, and he was pleading the promise, God has said that there will be rain. The people are now restored. And do you remember in Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, God had given promises of blessing for obedience and God had spelt out curses that would come upon God's people for disobedience when there was idolatry when there was Sabbath breaking God had said that we would send drought upon the land their fields would not yield crops and that had happened there were an idolatrous people who were worshipping Baal and the covenant curse had come upon them but now it's been lifted rain is coming the people are worshipping the living God they've fallen down before him Declared that he is the Lord. And so Elijah prays with faith. And then what happens? Verse 45. The sky turns black. Clouds come. There's a great wind. And then there's a heavy rain. And he tells Ahab, well, you go to Jezreel now. You go and speak to Jezebel. You tell her what God has done. And he himself is so enthused and so exuberant and so full of joy that the Bible says that he runs, and I think it's about 18 miles, about 20 miles, and he manages to get to Jezreel before Ahab himself. You see, this man is full of hope. Now, before we look at the next chapter, which is a huge contrast I just want us to draw some lessons for us. You see, we've been in a very different type of lockdown. And there's been a debate amongst Christians, hasn't there? Is what we are suffering and the world's suffering in some way a judgment from God? We're not God, can we say this? Certainly all would agree it's a consequence of the, of the fall. And so in one sense it's a curse from God because uh, all sickness and all disease is part of Adam's fall. And we're looking forward to that new heaven and the new earth where there'll be no more sickness, no more pandemics. But some Christians have gone further and they've said, well, maybe this is actually the heavy hand of God upon the world for its rejection of him. But whatever your conclusion is, we must say this, God is sovereign. And what has happened in our world, is part of God's sovereign will and his plan. And the lockdown has been planned by God. Are we coming out of it? Who knows? Who knows whether there'll be a second wave? Who knows if there'll be a vaccine found soon? We don't know these things. But we need to ask as Christians, are there any signs of spiritual hope for us? Because our nation has turned away from God and it's been many years and we're going further and further and further away from God of course we're not Israel and of course our situation cannot be paralleled exactly to Israel, England or Wales or Scotland or Ireland is not Israel but we are concerned for the nation and we ask ourselves are there any signs of hope well it was said that at one stage, a third of the people in Great Britain were listening in to online services. How many of those are evangelical? We don't know. But many people have been awakened to spirituality. Just a little thing that I've noticed in our church, we put a little box with John's Gospels in and tracts. And every week, tracts and Gospels are taken And I'm astounded. One week there may be three Gospels are taken and ten tracts are taken by passers-by. When you put tracts through the door, you wonder, does anybody read them, don't you? There's another thing when somebody takes a tract. Maybe you've been concerned for people on the periphery of your church. They were coming to the church back in February, the beginning of March, but where are they now? Are we losing them? Will they come back? Well, I've been encouraged. We're a smaller church, only 50 or 60. I'm able to get around them all and know all the people. And the people that you're concerned about, they're actually listening online to the messages. And we mustn't underestimate what God is doing as His word is being sown. You see, Elijah wanted to see visible results. He wanted to see the fire coming down from heaven, and he wanted to see the people worshiping him. But but when things seem the contrary to him in chapter 19. And when he actually believes actually he's the only one left and nothing is really happening and he's utterly depressed and he has a black mood and a very dark mood. When he's like that and when we are like that, we dishonor God. Because God is often doing far more than we can see. God has said to him, I, I've reserved 7,000 who have not bowed the knee. It's not just you, the 7,000. And when we come out of lockdown and we say, well, the world is just the same, and nothing's happening, and the, and the land seems to be even worse, well, we're not God. God may just be doing more than we are seeing. My wife, for the first time, has decided to grow things from seed. So in February, she, or March, she planted lots of little seeds. And we've seen come up in, our, in some um, planters, things like carrots, broccoli, peppers, different things. And, and it's lovely, we've got these huge broccoli, and they've just come from tiny seeds. We had to wait a long time. But surely that's the work of the gospel. We're planting seeds And it may take time, but God is at work in his own way. Are there signs of hope? For some of us, when we heard that Boris Johnson had gone into hospital and uh, we heard that the the overall doctor in charge of him was from the Metropolitan Tabernacle, a Christian, we were hopeful. And then somebody said to me, not long before that, a Gideon Bible was given to Boris Boris Johnson. And you think, well, and then afterwards, you see, he just returns to his old ways and your hopes are dashed. You know, we must trust God and not depend upon a government. If our government goes further downhill and the laws are passed which are even further opposed to God's word, we must not lose hope. In the early church, when it was a wicked Roman government, when you had people like Domitian or Nero The gospel was prospering and people were being saved. Are there signs of hope? Well, we may hope that the Oxford vaccine is going to work as it's being trialed in Brazil and other countries. Maybe some people are hoping even the Russian vaccine is going to be a solution. Others have great doubts. But you know, our our hope is not in these things. Our hope is in the living God. I've been encouraged during lockdown, as well as facing trials and tests like you all, I've seen people who seem to not be interested at all in the word of God telling me that they're listening over to a sermon the same sermon twice or five times over. We need to pray that God will work in a wonder working way. Now what did Elijah do? He prayed in faith. In James chapter 5 we're reminded that Elijah was a a person just like you and I. He had a nature just like you and I. He was a sinner just like you and I. Sometimes we think of these people of, of gigantic proportions. Here is a person who has huge faith. And a person who doesn't struggle with temptation. And a person who never gets down. And We learn that's quite the contrary. He was so depressed he wanted to um, God to take his life from him. But what do we read in James chapter five? We read this, that the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months and he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. Just one sinner, righteous in the sight of God, by God's grace through his faith in the promises of God praying fervently with faith and God hears that man's prayer God closes the heavens and then God opens up the heavens and why is that repeated for us in the new testament just as an example that we just look at and think well that was good for him or is it not meant to be a spur to you and I to be people of faith And people of prayer, oh, how we lack, oh, how I lack in this area. Oh, that God would stir us up to pray. So, signs of hope. Are there signs? I think we are seeing some signs of hope. But I want now to go into chapter 19. Chapter 19 is all about Elijah understanding God's will. If you're reading this for the first time, it might be very shocking for you. Because for the very first time when you read this, we see a champion of faith on Mount Carmel doing battle, won against 450. And here he is at the end of the chapter with exuberant joy, running ahead of the chariot of Ahab, getting to Jezreel. He's on fire. But you come into chapter 19, and it goes from exuberant joy to depression. It goes from victory to defeat. You see, for him, all of his hopes are dashed. When he realises that Ahab's heart has not been changed. And Jezebel is a saint. She still wants to kill the prophets of God. And she says to him, you've got 24 hours, basically, verse 2. By this time tomorrow, you're going to be a dead man, she basically says. As you have slain the prophets of Baal, so you also will be slain. Fear sets in he's mentally exhausted there's been that great contest so much emotion prayer he's run for 18 miles physically he's weak and now for him all his hopes are dashed and he gets to the point that believing even the confession of the people is not real, is not genuine And he says, Lord, having gone right down to south, out of the northern kingdom, into Judah, verse 2, down to Beersheba, a, a track of a hundred miles, going into the wilderness all by his, himself, under a broom tree, wants to die. And God is going to teach him things in this position. Though he's seen these great signs of hope, he needs to understand God's sovereign purposes. What about you? Maybe you've had hopes for your children. You've seen them showing real spiritual interest. They profess faith. It seems so genuine. They, they were, they were baptised in the waters of baptism, declaring their faith in the Lord Jesus. Maybe they've served in a church, given faithfully their tithes, but then they've turned away from God. And they've denied the faith. And all your hopes are dashed. There were such signs of of hope for you. Or maybe your church. You saw a turning point in the life of the church. And you felt that God was coming to meet his church in in a new way. And then there was disagreements amongst some people in the church. And things turned a bit sour. And it really knocked you. Maybe you had hopes for the nation. You saw, as it were, a movement in the mulberry trees, a rustling of the mulberry trees. You you saw signs of what you thought was going to happen, and yet there was nothing. You heard of union, and they said, we're going to have these commanders that are going to go through the valleys. You heard of other things that were encouraging you, but it all came to Nothing. How are we to act at such times? Hope deferred makes the heart sick, doesn't it? To identify with Elijah down in the dumps, maybe you haven't gone that far. Maybe you haven't wanted God to take your life from you. He feels a failure, doesn't he? It's enough, verse 4. Now, Lord, take my life. I am no better than my father's, he says. He's in a vulnerable position. There's nobody to talk to. He's all alone. And he's fearful. And doubts creep across his mind. Well, what does God do? Well, God was very gracious to his servant. God sent him an angel. And God told him the first thing that he needed was not the Bible, was not preaching. All he needed was rest. God understood his physical needs. Yes, God would after speak to him with a still small voice. But first, he needed his physical frame restored. He'd given out so much. He just needed to sleep. And he needed food. And the Lord provided, again, miraculously for him. There was that jar of water under that broom tree. And there was those cakes baked for him, fresh. And then the Lord said, having provided that for him sleep now and he rested and the next day the Lord gave him food again through the angel But so you've heard of folk, that's happened to I've heard of missionaries, they've come on the, off the mission field absolutely exhausted and the missions have said you just need some time away and they put them in the house of a dear old lady and the dear old lady cooks lovely food for them and tells them to rest and enjoy her garden and their strength is replenished We are human beings, aren't we? And God understands that. But then, having been gracious to Elijah in that way, the Lord takes him to a mountain. He says, go in the strength of that food. He goes 40 days. I'm sure that's significant, 40 days. Comes to Mount Horeb. And the Lord doesn't speak to him in the wind or the fire or the earthquake. He says, Elijah... Don't look at the dramatic. You've seen the dramatic on on Mount Carmel, but that's not the be-all and end-all. It's my still, small voice that you must listen to. Elijah, what are you doing here? Don't you realize that I'm at work? Don't you realize that I can still use you? Don't give up, Elijah. My work is far more than you can see. I do a quiet work. And here he speaks to him with a quiet, still voice. And he says to them, you know, you're going to have somebody else. I'm going to provide a co-worker for you. Chapter 19 and verse 16. Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel, Mahalal. You shall anoint as prophet in your place. Remind yourself also this. You're not indispensable. I have others that would do the work. So often when we're in Christian work, we feel it all depends upon us, and it doesn't. It depends totally upon the Lord. And the Lord would use Elisha to help get rid of Baal worship. But the Lord also says to him, you have international work to do. There's going to be other things that are going to happen. Verse 15, anoint Haziel as king over Syria. In the end, Elisha would do that. And then verse 17, you have work to do. Sorry, verse 16, also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. The Lord is saying, listen, there's work to do. In the end, it wouldn't be him. It would be Elisha who would do these tasks or servants of Elisha. But he's saying, my work will continue and Baal worship will be extinguished. And Jehu did become king over Israel. And God did use even the king of, of Assyria, Haziel. And Baal worship was rid from, from the land, that old Canaanite, wicked, pagan religion. And I have reserved... 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You see, in verse 10, Elijah says this, I've been very zealous for the Lord, God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left and they seek my life. He feels that he is the only one left, the bastion of the truth. Everybody else is compromised. He's the only one standing firm and the Lord has to say to him, you've got it wrong, Elijah. Though you are my servant and though you have been zealous and though I love you, you're not indispensable and I have reserved 7,000 and my work will continue. What does this say to us? It says to each one of us here that God's work is His work. Jesus has said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We are to play our part. We are to work hard. We will be disappointed. But we must remind ourselves that when we're alone, We're in a vulnerable position and if we begin to wallow in our sorrows and feel that everything's bad for us, we're not in a good place. We need to be brought to the place where we hear God's still voice speaking to us and reminding us through his word that he is sovereign and that he will build his church. Now, I don't know about you, I would love to see revival. I told my church a few weeks ago, because we were nearing the first Sunday in August, of a meeting that took place in 1858 in Aberdare of ministers, and they called their churches to pray on the first Sunday of each month for revival. A little church just down the road from us in Clan Haran, just a couple of miles away from our church, um, began to pray fervently. and By the following February, they were seeing Literally dozens of people professing faith. And in the Vale of Glamorgan, which at that time was very agricultural and very small groups of people, but very decadent, the Lord did amazing work. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds were converted and added to the church. And that's what we desire. We long to see that. But we must not despise the day of small things. And if we don't see something in our generation, Elijah wasn't to see all that he wanted to see. Who can tell what might happen in the next generation? Now, Elijah, in verse 4, I believe is feeling his sin. Not only his failure, what he perceived to be his failure, but his sin. He says, it is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. I'm just like the rest of them, I'm a sinful failure, and I'm sure the devil capitalized on that. Do you ever feel like that? You feel such a failure and such a sinner, and that actually prevents you doing the work of the Lord. Maybe you say, "Well, I haven't seen somebody converted through me. I haven't seen my friends turning to God and i'm just a sinner i don't feel much different from the world and that prevents you from going ahead doing the work of the lord well at such times we need to remind ourselves that the lord called elijah a righteous man james chapter 5 the fervent prayers of a righteous man avail much and he was righteous not because of anything about him in terms of his keeping of the law. He was righteous because he was a man who believed the word of God and the promises of God and looked to Messiah and God declared him righteous because of his faith. And we need to remind ourselves when we feel overwhelmed by our sin and feeling failures that we have a man in the glory, the Lord Jesus, who is our advocate. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven in his hands. My name is written on his heart. And while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward would I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Brothers and sisters, we're a Christian church. And if we're Christians, we look to Christ. We're in a much better position than Elijah. We've been given the fullness of the revelation of Jesus Christ We've seen what Jesus has done for us upon the cross. And no matter how many hopes are dashed in life, we know that our names are written in heaven. Jesus said to his disciples, do not rejoice when you see that Satan is subject to you, when these demons are cast out. Don't rejoice in these things. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. And so may it be that when we're brought low, when our hopes are dashed, that we understand that we have a man in heaven, Christ Jesus, our advocate, and by God's grace, we're righteous through his blood. And may that stir us to continue to serve him and to continue to believe that he is working out his purposes. Nothing can thwart the Lord. Nothing can can frustrate his plans. And may we learn from Elijah that when we're in the heights, and when we're in exuberant joy, let's be careful because it's just then that we may be brought down very low. Let's learn to trust God through all the changing scenes of life. So may God bless his word to us this morning. Amen.